Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. And for those that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thank you for bringing the church into wherever you happen to be tuning in from, your living room, wherever that that is. Uh, if you're new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie, and it's my joy to be one of the pastors, one of the elders here uh, at Crosspoint. And I'm excited to be able to open up God's Word with you all as we are week two into a, a brand new series that we began last week, uh, a series that's an exploration of our origins story, looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. As we started that last week, it's going to take us all the way to actually the start of Advent. And we're going to spend, I would say, a disproportionate amount of time even in this, in the first three chapters. And so as we get into this series and you're like, how are they going to do this by Advent? It's going to be a little slower at first because there's so much in the opening three chapters. In this series, we've called it Creation and Chaos and looking at our origin story. And we have to understand the way that the Bible begins, what's happening in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. If we don't understand that, we won't understand the trajectory of our stories. Um, so often it can be said that no one would have probably ever stated this aloud, but perhaps you were raised in a church environment where you heard a lot about Genesis 3, meaning you heard a lot about the brokenness, the fallenness of this world, all right? And you heard a lot about like a coming judgment. So functionally, you heard a lot about Genesis 3 to like Revelation 20, all right? And those are super important. There's a lot that happens in there. There's a lot of important things, right? But if you miss Genesis 1 and 2, all right, and you miss like Revelation 21 and 22, like you functionally miss like, oh, what have we been put here to do? Like, how did the world originally begin? And if we understood how it began and what God's intentions were and how there was this shalom, this flourishing, then we will better understand where the story is heading. And so I went to seminary to learn that, gen that the book in the Bible starts in Genesis chapter one, right? Like, oh, there you go, like this novel idea. But it is so important that we understand how the story begins. And so with that, we're going to look at the first 25 verses of Genesis 1. We looked at verses 1 and 2 last week to help us explore who is the author of our story, who's the storyteller. And I want to read verses 1 and 2 again, and then we'll look at verses in particular 3 through 25 this morning. This is the creation account. This is the, the days of creation. We're going to get all the way up to the creation of humanity. And if you're wondering like why we don't talk about that today, it's because that's going to be a dedicated sermon all for next week. But we're going to look at kind of this overview of what's happening through the first six days. And so I want to encourage you to have the text in front of you. So if you brought a Bible, or you can use one of the few Bibles that are here. Turn to Genesis chapter one, page one of the Bible. Uh, you can also scan the QR code in the pew. It'll bring up a menu that, that says sermon notes. The text is there, the space to follow along, take notes. I would encourage you uh, to follow along in, in that way, um, or you can access that at thisiscp.church. But friends, as we read God's word, as we enter into this story, if you're able, I want to invite you to please stand as I read these opening words of our scripture. So hear God's word this morning, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven 
or the skies. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land, the earth or the land and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let, there, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Verse 20, and God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as we get into this, I don't think this will come as a surprise, all right? Um, if you've been around church for more than just a, a couple of days, you would probably know this, right? That people down through the centuries, I'm not talking about just out there, I'm saying like in the church, those who profess to be followers of Jesus, those who've trusted in the grace and mercy of Jesus, right? Have debated about like what's happening in Genesis 1. There's lots of different takes on this. How are we to understand this? Are these a literal 24 hour days and God created all of everything that we see in that? Did God use other means? How do we account for how the earth apparently like looks a lot older than what this would tell us it is? And if you're here this morning, like I just wanna know what happened to the dinosaurs, man. Can somebody tell me, right? I'm not the person to tell you, I, I don't know. Um, but how are we to think about these things? And so I wanna put a couple of things before you because I think anytime you enter into a text that has been uh, controversial and there'll be more of these in the book of Genesis. So this is a helpful framework for us to keep uh, in mind is it's important to not take every theological category, every theological like difference or, or belief and like ramp them up to the same level of intensity. Some deserve it, but not everything. All right, so how should we think about this? And uh, there's a professor by the name of Dr. Bashirs at a Western seminary, and he has, I think, a, a kind of a helpful framework, all right? Uh, here, here's how this, this goes, that there are theological beliefs, all right, that we would die for, right? That there are things, it's like, yeah, people have been martyred for belief in certain things, 
Somebody tells you like, no, you can't believe that Jesus is the son of God. You can't believe, you need to recant that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. You gotta recant that Jesus is fully divine and fully man, right? Somebody says, no, it's not. You're not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through the finished work of Christ alone. No, you contribute to your salvation, right? Those are hills to die on. So you die for those things. There are other things he would say that we divide for. And these can be significant matters. That's why oftentimes, right, like, there are church, different denominations, these sort of things. There are things that are not unimportant. There are places where there's been division and I think it's needed and necessary, all right? You're in a Protestant church, all right? As opposed to a Catholic church. Like there's been divisions down to the years. There's some things that are worth dividing for, all right? There are other things that are worth debating for, debating about, talking about, all right? Things that really do matter, but they're not worth dividing over, and they're certainly not worth dying over. I would put Genesis 1 and your take and my take and our understanding, like we should press in, we should seek to understand all of that. But at the same time, I don't believe that this is something worth dividing over. It's certainly not worth dying over. And if you're kind of wondering like where we land as a church, the culture we're trying to create around an issue like this is to see what's the bigger message that Jesus is talking about? What is the bigger message that the scriptures are communicating? All right, so we can debate about this. I think there's room for that. There should be healthy, robust dialogue. We're all for that. But with a posture of love and care and compassion and a humility that says, I don't know what happened to the dinosaurs, man, right? Like just how do we embrace those things? And then lastly, there are things that we can just simply kind of decide for, meaning they're not spoken of in the Bible. They're just simply like, preferences, right? Like you have a preference of like what musical style that you like, all right? Churches will engage in different forms of worship. I mean, there's a number of things that we could talk about, right? And so in that, you might be like, you know what? I, I, I really, you know, I want the 25 minute sermon. You're in the wrong church, right? Whatever it happens to be, right? But there are things that you can decide for. So with that, Let's just talk for a moment. I'll I'll put a few of these things out there um, and kind of give you a sense of like where we're going. And we're not gonna do a deep dive into into these things because I think Genesis 1 is communicating something as we understand the author and we understand the context, we recognize, oh, get here's what we should at least embrace, right? Moses is the author. I'll unpack that more. And if Moses is the author, he did not set out to pen Genesis chapter one to be like, I gotta let that guy Darwin have it. If you had said Darwin to the name, to Moses, he would have been like, huh? Like, what? Are you, who, Charles, who, what, what are you talking about? Like, wouldn't have had any context for that. So this is not written, all right? We can't import our modern day context. We have to understand the ancient context, the primeval context, the, the things that were going on in the time of Moses. And when we see that, friends, I think it begins to unlock for us. Oh, so this is what was going on. And this is how we're to understand it. Oh, and if we understand that and the implications, it has massive implications for your story and my story in present day. And so there are things down through the years, like if you're wondering, you're like, what are some of the different views, right? I mean, here's a list. This is not an exhaustive list, all right? But these are things when people break down like, hey, How should we understand Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? And so there are things like the gap theory, which tries to explain like, how do we have like seemingly 
the earth being spoken of is created in like six literal days, but also things in creation that say it's a lot, lot older. And so some would be like, well, yeah, God created everything in Genesis one. There was this gap of time between verse one and verse two. So maybe that's where the dinosaurs disappeared, right? And suddenly there was this chaos. Maybe it's during that time that Satan fell. Maybe there's all of, all of that. And so God had to remake everything in six days. So some gap theory, I've probably not represented that perfectly, but there's it in a, in a summary. Day age view, right? This is not meant to be viewed as literal 24 hour days, but they represent ages, long periods of time. So this is spoken of more like an imagery of a day, but it represented thousands of years, that sort of thing. Some will go in a camp of saying, God used evolutionary means to bring about his purposes. So not in a, no, there's no God or this big bang sort of thing, but rather God, himself was involved in this, this intelligent design, the way that he worked. There, there's certainly literal 24-hour day. It's just as it says in Genesis 1. Why would you read it anywhere way else, right? And so looking at that, which as an aside, one thing that I find fascinating is the reformers in the time of like Martin Luther and John Calvin. One of the things, I, I didn't have any idea of this, I was studying this over the last couple of weeks, Calvin dealt with people that they had issue with a 24-hour day, not because they're like, hey, the earth is way older, all right? It couldn't possibly be 24 hours, but rather they're like, are you really gonna tell me God needed six 24-hour days to do this? He didn't need that much time. And so do you see different people in different times have different questions, different expectations, different things that they're bringing to it? And so I think there should be a posture of just like, how can we humbly approach this and also understand the bigger picture? Then there's also a literary framework view, which I'll get into actually some of that a bit later in the, the message, about 90 minutes from now, it's gonna be awesome. All right, so, um, but literary framework, will unpack that. But what I want you to consider is this, I think it's possible. Like, I like these questions. I, I wanna know these things. Like, it's gonna be like, you know, one of the probably, you know, top questions that when like new heavens, new earth and get to, get to talk to, you know, like, hey, Jesus, like, how did this actually go? I'd love to know. I wanna know the answers to these things. So I'm not like opposed to this. If you're like, hey, I like these sort of things. I'm not looking down my nose at you being like, how dare you ask those questions? No, these are fascinating things, right? Science is fascinating, right? Christianity and science, I don't think should be at odds with one another. But when we look at Genesis 1 and we're asking it questions that it was never intended to answer, I think we get stuck. So think about it this way. What if how is actually the wrong question? What if Genesis 1 wasn't intended to give this detailed, okay, here's exactly how it all went, but rather was maybe speaking to some of the overall purposes? What if Genesis 1 is communicating some things out to the broader culture so that God's people would actually know, oh, here's what it looks like to rest in the truth. So I actually think what Genesis 1, if you're wondering my take uh, on this, is that it really is being positioned as a polemic. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And if you're like, okay, well, what's that, that word? That's the, this idea of it is a very, I would say, aggressive debate. It's, it's aggressively going after competing views of reality. There were competing views of cosmology, literally like how the cosmos came to be. And so I told you it's important author, understand context, all right? And so I wanna do a little bit of this work and we're gonna spend more time in this, this first section than the next couple, because if we don't understand this, I don't actually, I think we kind of get off on the wrong foot as it pertains to understanding Genesis 1, the rest of the series, the rest of the Bible, all right? And so hear this, remember, 
Moses is the one. He is regarded as the author of the first five books uh, of the Bible. Uh, there are certain portions he certainly didn't read because there's things that we're you know, talking about like when he died, and I don't think he wrote that, right, from the dead, right? But, there, but by and large, good reason to believe that, that a lar- large portion of what we have is the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis, authored by Moses under the inspiration of God. Now, Moses was what? What do we know about his story? Moses was somebody that was raised, all right? Like he was rescued as a little boy. He should have been slaughtered. He was living in, because God's people are enslaved in Egypt. All the little boys are supposed to be killed, but he is rescued and he is literally brought to where? To live, to grow up in the Pharaoh, the, the king of the land in his household. So there's things about the culture he would have been very familiar with. And then God uses him to deliver his people. Moses is used by God to deliver God's people out of slavery in Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, like all of these things. Like, and so by the time we're getting this, Moses would have been part of that exodus, part of that story. And so I think it's helpful to remember and picture like, oh, he grew up in a context where there were certain explanations about how the world formed. You and I are not the first people to ask like, where did we come from? What is the origin story? And so the Egyptians, we're gonna look at that in a moment, and the Babylonians were two dominant, all right, worldviews, dominant cultures in the time and place where this is being written. And they had their accounts. And so I wanna do a little bit of a, of a cursory, like kind of fly over historically. How did the Egyptians answer the question, where did we come from? And how did the Babylonians answer that? And some of you are like, Ooh, that sounds fascinating. And the rest of you are like, really? Like history, but just bear with me, all right? Because I think if you get this, it begins to unlock things. And what we need to remember is it's not just in the here and now that we are in like a battle over belief. And I don't, I don't mean in a way that we like ramp it up and we're fighting and all that rhetoric, but I'm saying like, there are competing worldviews. There are competing, competing takes on reality. A phrase that we've used through the years at Crosspoint to understand this is you and I inhabit, we live in contested space. And that every single person who has ever lived past, present and into the future is a disciple. And you are either being discipled by the story of the Bible, a story that begins in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You're either being discipled by that story or you're being discipled by a competing story. And I know most of us wouldn't walk around today saying, hey, yep, and we are being discipled by the Egyptian cosmology or the Babylonian, all right? But Moses was having to write to a group of people they very much would have been. And there's overlap with how they talked about things that make their way, because there's nothing new under the sun, they make their way into our present day. And so if we see what Moses, this polemic, the way that he's writing, like he literally is willing to kind of take a stand and say, okay, You've heard this, but I want to tell you, like I almost picture him like, yes, he's writing it down, but like gathering God's people and being like, you're not going to believe this. Here's what we heard in Egypt and here's what the surrounding nations and cultures say, but I want to tell you the true story. I kind of imagine everybody sort of like leaning in and being like, tell us, like we want to know because these things haven't really satisfied. Like there seems to be some things that are missing. There's some things that we just feel in our gut and our very being that we're like, this can't be all there is to the story. So Moses begins to speak into this contested space. And so a couple of things, spend less time on, on Egypt, but just one of the things that emerges in their, their story is this. All these ancient stories, when people were like, where do we come about? You will find a common element and a common element in almost all of them in that time, in that place, that part of the world is that there were the, the waters that they're spoken of as like chaos, the chaotic waters, the dark waters. The Egyptian story starts that way. 
our Bible starts that way. Genesis 2, right? Darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God, we looked at this last week, was what? Was hovering, it says, over the face of the waters. So the Egyptian story starts that way. And the primeval waters were referred to as Nun, N-U-N, okay? That's what they were referred to as. And as they told their story and they discipled their children into the story, there was a creator God. But this creator God somehow was like, appeared on the scene through like self-generation, self-creation. And I don't know if I'm saying this, pronouncing the name correctly, A-T-U-M, a tomb. So a tomb emerged out of the chaotic waters, somehow created himself, however that happens, right? And then began to create the lesser deities, the gods and goddesses. Functionally begins to create the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the rivers, the Nile, like all of these things. And that's what the Egyptians worshiped. Functionally have a worship of creation and this mixing together of deity with just the, the surrounding land and all the things that you experience. So remember, Moses grew up hearing that. Moses was familiar with this. The Egyptian, or sorry, the Israelite people would have heard this when they were enslaved. But more than that, one of the additional things is that there was another story. And this is a story of the Babylonians and how they were answered the question, hey, where did we come from? And perhaps you've actually heard this if you maybe had some religion class in, in college or something, and maybe this, you know, maybe you're like, oh, this is, this is traumatic. I don't like thinking about that. But, uh, but maybe you'll re remember this. You might've run across this somewhere. The Babylonian account is referred to as the Enuma Elish. It's literally the first two words of this ancient Babylonian account. They found these like seven stone tablets, literally. And here's this account of creation. Now this, I'm just gonna let you know right on the front end, it's bizarre, right? I mean, there's some things in here I'm gonna explain. It's like, what in the world? And why are we talking about this at church? But if we understand Moses is writing in a way to combat these sort of stories, like he's a good shepherd, he's a good leader, he's a good pastor for these people. Cause he's like, this isn't it. Let me tell you the true story, but it's helpful to know. And again, it starts with water and it starts in this case with uh, two, uh, you have a male God, you have the God and a goddess. It's Apsu and Tiamat. They are literally the God and goddesses of the chaotic waters. And it tells us that their waters mingled. So you can figure out what that means, right? Um, and so in that there were lesser gods and goddesses. Their children literally were created. And in a moment that most of us probably can relate to, Apsu one day gets super frustrated. And he's like, why will the kids not be quiet? He like, he just kind of loses it, right? And he threatens that he's gonna literally wipe out all of his offspring, okay? Um, I won't ask for a show of hands if you've been there, but some of you are just like, hey, I get it, right? And so there, <laughs> yes, all right. So, so in this, this moment, all right, Tiamat, she hears this. She's like, no, you can't kill my kids, right? And so like they, they're, they're like, they're having a marital moment and they're, they're fighting, right? And so one of the lesser gods, one of their offspring is Ea, all right? Who's the God of wisdom. And he decides, okay, I am not, uh, uh we're gonna rally together. And so he ends up actually taking out Opsu, all right? Well, Tiamat didn't want the children to be killed, but she also didn't want Opsu to be killed. And now she's mad. And so now there's this, there's greater conflict. So this was the story. When the Babylonian kids were gathered around, mom and dad, tell us how the world came about. This is the story they would tell right before bed. It was very terrifying, okay? Um, and so here they are, they're gathered together, all right? Tiamat is enraged, all right? And in this battle, they don't know what to do. Ea is like kind of freaking out apparently, doesn't know. And one of the people that steps up, one of the gods that steps up, one of the offspring is Marduk. Perhaps you've heard that, that name before. Marduk is like, I'll do it. I will fight. I'll go to battle, all right? I'll defend you, Ea, and all that you did. 
But if I win and when I win, like I am sovereign, I am king of kings and Lord of lords is basically what he's saying, okay? And so a battle is getting ready to take place. Tiamat, this will be important in a moment. She summons the help though of this person. I keep saying person, but this God, Quingu, all right? Um, Who is regarded as a demon God, okay? The battle takes place. Tiamat versus Marduk, the force, the waters, the chaotic waters. And Marduk, as they translate this out of Akkadian, these stone tablets, this description becomes one where there was a a summoning of a great wind. And Marduk, I don't know if he generated the wind or how it worked, but it blew against Tiamat. And the description that is used is she has personified these chaotic waters were to the point that it literally opened wide her mouth, that the wind was coming at such a howling pace that it just, like it blew open her mouth. And as her mouth opened, Wider than it had ever been, Marduk took his bow and arrows and began shooting arrows down into the throat, down into the belly of Tiamat to the point that eventually it just, it caused her to explode from within. This is part of the creation story. And then Marduk said, okay, I will take Tiamat and her dead body and pulls it in half and takes half of it and fashions the heavens and takes the other half and fashions the ground. And so when little Babylonian kids are like, where did we come from? That's the story that they would have heard about the earth and the heavens and the skies and where it all came from. Well, what about us? Where did we come from? That's where Quingu comes in. Quingu was then killed by Marduk and it was from his blood that humanity was made. Welcome to church, okay? So this is the context. Now that sounds all very bizarre, but now remember, okay? Moses is writing in a way to combat these things. And so think for a moment about how Genesis begins. I'll put before you this, all right? Because again, alliteration is always fun. Let's talk about God, grammar, and goodness. For one, God shows up in the opening line and he wasn't somebody that had to be created. He just always has been, all right? He didn't emerge out of the chaotic waters. He's over the chaotic waters. He's sovereign over it that there is a distinction that the way the Bible, the way Genesis 1 begins is this. There's literally God, the creator, and then there's a line drawn. And underneath that is what? Everything else. You want a framework about how to think about the world? There's creator and then there's creation. And anytime the creation gets worshiped or overly elevated above that line, this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter one, things spiral towards more chaos. So big picture, you wanna know like, why are things so chaotic? It's because we're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. There's God, he's sovereign overall. There's not a multitude of gods. The sun isn't a God, the river's not a God, right? Unless we think we're so sophisticated nowadays that we never get that flipped, we just have new gods. So we might not worship the the river, the the sun or, or the ocean, right? But we worship career and we worship relationships and we worship approval from other people. Like there's so many things that we're looking for that we, we scoot it above that line. And then we wonder why things are so chaotic. So God is introduced. There's also, all right, the language of Genesis 1. Did you hear it as I read it? Like there's this rhythm, there's a cadence, there's sort of a beat to the, to the whole thing. There's repetition of phrases, It's not to say that it's not communicating any aspect of history, but there's a poetry about it. And with that, I don't think it's meant to be pressed for like every last detail, but how did this exactly happen? But there's these repeated refrains that keep showing up. And one is this, it says over and over again, and God said. 
So our God speaks. He speaks a word. Do you see that our God is beginning to create, not in response to like somehow, like he's bothered by that there's chaotic waters or there's this battle. He's like, no, no, like I created the darkness. I created the waters. I've created it all. And our God just simply speaks and it is. There's that also that repeated line, and it was so. Like, I want this to be the reality of my life, right? Just like, hey, I need this thing to to go a certain way and I just speak and it was so. Except that never happens. But it does for God, the power behind his words. But I told you, we got to look at God, we got to look at grammar. And I was reading, rereading a book called, um, by Andy Crouch called Playing God. And it's this exploration of, of power. And yes, the abuse of power, but also the beauty of power, the way that God gives us power to steward. And when we look at these opening words where it says, and God said, let there be. Did you hear that phrase repeated day after day, right? Let there be, let there be light, let there be land, let there be birds, like all of these things. God could have spoken in a way that would be in the imperative. Go and do this, right? Give a command, it's to be done. Boss gives a command to an employee, right? A police officer tells you to to do something or, you know, a parent says it to a child, like some authority speaks something. But this phrase, and God said, let there be, it's nuanced. It's not an imperative. It doesn't mean it's not a a command or an authoritative word because this is the word of God that brings about life. But Andy Crouch in his book says, oh, but this is in the jussive form. And all of us are like, oh yeah, amen. No, what in the world? What does that mean? Let me read to you a portion of what he said in response to this line, let there be, because it's loaded with like an invitation. Our God is not creating this world out of violence, right? He's bringing chaos to this cosmos, to this inhabited space. And he's doing so in a way to empower his creation. And at the pinnacle of his creation, he's gonna empower you and me because we've got good work to do. We get to participate. That this let there be is written in such a way where God is saying, I'm gonna make this happen, but I'm also giving away. I'm asking you to join me in this. And so Andy Crouch says, let there be does not have to assert power. It assumes it. It does not have to impose power. It indwells it. Yet let there be also suggest a multiplication of power that is not found in the peremptory, I can't even say that word, phrase, right? We'll just say that. Make it so. Make it so is a strictly limited and limiting command. The subordinates making it so are not expected to make anything else so, no more, no less. But when the words let there be ring through the universe, they accomplish very literally what they describe, the creation of being where there was none before. New beings come into existence, each with their own capabilities, potential, and sphere of influence. Indeed, let there be bequest power to others, making room for more power. This is the beauty of what's happening grammatically even in this. And so Crouch says, by saying, let there be, the creator God makes room for more being, for more agents who could utter their own, let it be. And in response to that divine justice, acting in the space opened up by God's creative power, they will engage in their own acts of creativity. On the successive days of a Genesis story, those empowered creatures will yield seed, bear fruit, rule the day and night, fly, be fruitful, multiply, creep, and fill the earth. And that's just talking about the animals, not even you and I as humanity. Like we get to do that and then some. 
And so I love that line. Like there's this creative power. We get to utter our own, let it be. May it be so. Friends, anytime you engage in a creative act, it's you saying, oh, let there be. It's a work of art that you produce, that there was something here. And now it's, you take the raw materials and you've shaped it into something else. Oh, let it be. Some of you are like, I don't know, man. I don't know how to do I'm not artistic. I can't create anything. Okay, well, what about this? You took the ingredients in the kitchen, even if it was simple, it's like there was milk and there was cereal and I poured it together. Let there be breakfast, right? Like this is a creative act. You plant something out in the yard. You pull the weeds, you mow the yard. Like let it be, you're taming, you're subduing creation. Like all of it matters. And God is inviting you and I to participate. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit into the creation of humanity, but this is the language that's being used. It's not just go and do that, end of the story static, but no, God's creating something. And it says there's this swarming and there's this teeming, there's this vibrancy to life. This is not a story rooted in violence and more chaos in a multiplicity of gods. No, this is one God who is sovereign and he is good and he's hovering over the chaotic, over the waters. Like we looked at last week, like this mother bird caring for her young and inviting, oh, you get to participate. Come and be part of this. And then what was a revolutionary? Like we read this, we gloss over it. We hear, and God saw that it was good. We're like, yeah, okay, I get it. No, Like in its time and place, this was revolutionary because the material world down through the ages has been disregarded. We're spiritual beings. We're meant to escape this. But that's not the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible is like, no, God coming to dwell with us. It's Jesus, God, the God, man, the second person of the Trinity, taking a flesh and blood. And when he resurrected from the dead, he didn't come back as a disembodied soul, but his full body with the scars to prove it, like this world matters. This declaration, it was good. And it wasn't that God looked out and said it was good as if he's surprised. Like, oh, hey, I didn't do half bad there. Did you see that, right? Like, look at that. That's how we respond to things, or at least how I do. Oh, look, I tried to fix this thing and it hasn't broken yet. Oh, that seems good, right? God is looking out at it and he's declaring it good. He's marveling at it. He's rejoicing in it. He's inviting us to do the same, but ultimately he's pronouncing a word over it. He's declaring this word of benediction. It's good because he's creating friends in such a way that it's out of the overflow. It's, it's out of the, just this beauty, this love. There's like, he didn't need to do this. Genesis, he doesn't need to do any of these things. Here are these words from Christopher Watkin again. He says, God has not created a world with just enough sustenance, variety and abundance for survival. He's not a bare minimum sort of God but God created a super abundant world fit to foster the flourishing of his creatures. He is not limited to supply to the level of demand. Why have one or even 1000 species when you can have an estimated 8.7 million? Why just eat to survive and have sex to procreate when you can experience great enjoyment at the same time? Why create a monochrome world if you can make a human eye that can distinguish between seven and 10 million colors and stars? Oh, don't even go there. Astronomers estimate there are around 300 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy alone and perhaps 2 trillion galaxies. Now I ask you, what's the point of that? What a waste, what a delight. This is the nature and character of our God. This one who delights in it. And he's inviting us to delight in it. We don't come from a story, Moses is saying, of one that's rooted in chaos and of violence and aggression. 
And you can see where that story, how that would play out. But what if we understood our story is one of the self-giving nature of our God who invites us to participate? And how would we then steward that so that there's more flourishing? So we take the good things that the Lord has provided and see it expand. Now we're getting a vision of what our origin story is and what we were created for. But as we looked at last week, friends, this isn't the way it always goes. And so what I want you to see for just a moment now in light of all of that, there's this pattern. There is a particular pattern the way that the Lord puts things together that's shown here in Genesis 1. Not because it answers every last detail, but there's a pattern of forming and filling. And when it says in Genesis chapter one, verse two, that the world was without form and void, you remember this from last week, it was the Hebrew word tohu vabohu, right? Without form, no definition, no boundaries and empty. That's the, the state before God begins to speak into things. And so what's so fascinating then is as we read this account of Genesis one, God is saying, okay, What was formless, I'm going to form. And what was empty, I'm going to fill. Have you seen this before as you read through it? That there's a pattern of what's happening on day one that corresponds to day four. And what happens on day two that corresponds to day five. And what happens on day three that corresponds to day six. God is giving definition. He's forming particular environments so that he might fill them. Do you see the good design of our God? Like, look, forming and filling. Day one, right? Separating the, the, let there be light. Separating the light from the darkness and there's day and night. Okay, there's an environment there. There's boundaries. There's something, there's something given form. It's not just this like out there, right? Like it's, that's Hebrew for that. Okay, anyway, um, so there's, there's light that's great. And then day four, oh, what does it get filled with? The sun and the moon and the stars. It's part of the reason why I think even if you read this as like, oh, this is exactly how it played out. Well, there's light before there's sun and moon and stars. Like, well, how does that work? But what if Moses, the inspiration of God's spirit is saying, I'm just telling you a story about this pattern. And there's a way that we're meant to live. We can either live against the grain of the universe or with the grain. That we can live according to God's good design. Day two, right? The sky and the seas. And then what happens? There's form and it gets filled with birds and fish, the creatures of the deep, right? And of the heavens. Day three, there's dry land and vegetation. Okay, that's the forming. What happens? It gets filled with land animals and ultimately humanity. That's the pattern that's taking place here. And so I think it's worth asking as we continue in this series, as we continue to make our way through this text, as we get further even to the creation of humanity that we'll look at last week, begin asking ourselves this question, what happens for you and I individually and even collectively as a community when we live contrary to God's pattern of forming and filling? God gives definition to things. God sets boundaries. God has a particular way he's designed things to flourish. So what happens when we live contrary to that? I would put it before you this way. We are people that so value freedom. And there's some good in that. But there's this autonomous self where I don't want anybody to tell me anything. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And what we end up pursuing oftentimes is a world with no boundaries, with no definition, with no lines. We do not want to be boxed in. We view it as constrictive. But no one would ever say, I've used this before, right? But nobody would ever say like, oh, all right, fish, I've rescued you. I pulled you out of the water. The fish, if it could speak, would be like, you're a moron, put me back in. Like, I need the constriction. I need to be boxed in by the water so that I can flourish. 
But we run around all the time thinking, I don't need to pay attention to God's design, his boundaries, the things that he has set up in place. And what we often have is we have slavery masquerading as freedom, that we are slaves to all of these things. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to chaos. We're slaves to self, but we call it freedom. I'm getting to do what I want to do. And friends, if there was ever a time to be paying attention to forming and filling, because when we ignore the forms that God has created, when we say there's no boundaries, there's no definitions, and we define everything just the way that we want to, then we just are left with like trying to fill it with all the things that we think are going to satisfy and it never ever does. And so you think about some of the topics we're even gonna get into in the weeks ahead, right? God protects, creates particular definitions and boundaries, calls Adam and Eve as a husband and wife. There's a particular way there to, to leave and to, to cleave to one another, to become one, to not separate. But we live in a culture that just wants to disregard that. I'm not feeling it anymore. So I'm, I'm out, not paying attention to what God has set in place. You think about the fact that he created Adam and Eve, right? Like what you have here is even God defining there's male and female. And we live in a day and age where it's like, well, no, we don't want to consider those things. You get to choose what that is. It creates unspeakable chaos. We think about what we do with the work that we've been given to do. And we don't pay attention to the fact that God sets a boundary. He sets a form. He says, yes, do your work, okay? But rest, take a Sabbath. And so we're like, no, I'm gonna choose, I'm gonna do this. I love to work on all this. And we become enslaved to it. We're workaholics. We're just beat down and we're tired because we're not paying attention to God's good design. So it happens, you think about sexuality, right? Like, oh, I wanna define, I want to do what I want to do with who I want to, whenever I want to, in whatever context. And God's like, no, I created to flourish in a particular context. Are we paying attention to these things? And so at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, we'll close this last thing of what we need. If we, in the name of supposed freedom, right? Like we're pursuing all these things and it's leading to slavery. Like how do we actually find the freedom that we're made for? Like the right kind of freedom, the biblical kind of freedom, and one that would lead to flourishing. And the reality is we need to remember a word that was spoken to us. And so in this last thing, the proclamation, we talked about it a moment ago, God saw that it was good. Friends, I was so moved reading through as a sermon from 2008 by Tim Keller. And he, he made this observation. He said that in the garden, we hear those words and it was good. And those words are not spoken of any person ever from the garden of Eden until Jesus is baptized. And Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the waters. And we read this in Matthew three, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is the picture of the, the Trinity, the father, son, and spirit all here. And behold, a voice from heaven, the father speaks and said, this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's a word of blessing. It's a word of benediction. It's a speaking over his son. It's good. But because we don't pay attention and we disregard how God, the, the pattern of forming and filling, we then get in this spot. Like we looked at last week, more tohu vabohu, more creating of a mess. And Keller says this, we don't have the benediction then. Every single one of us in our heart of hearts, because we were built for this, like we need that word spoken of us is trying to fill a vacuum. We want our parents to love us. We want to get married to somebody who loves us, somebody we admire, hopefully. 
We're going out and trying to do well in the world. We're trying to make money. Why? We're trying to get a benediction. We're trying to get other people and other things to say, you're good, you're wonderful, you're delightful, you're incredible, that was great. But it never satisfies because it's God's benediction that we need. So we're driven by this. But what's so fascinating is that the apostle Paul picks up on these themes and he takes this benediction and he takes this blessing and he begins to apply it to people that are in Christ, people that have trusted in the finished work of Jesus. It's why he would say in Romans chapter 8, 15 to 16, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, like you've been freed. What? So he says, not to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. The spirit is literally bearing witness. You belong that we are children of God. It's this good word that's being spoken. As we close this, we get ready to worship, friends. What stirs worship in us is when we remember, despite all the ways we live and and move in a way that's like trying to do our own thing, God in his grace moves toward us. And God is willing to speak a word of blessing over you and me because of what his son accomplished. That Jesus Think about this, the one who it was declared over him. It's good, I'm pleased with you. When that same Jesus was in a garden pleading with the father that this cup might pass, what did he hear? He heard silence. And when he was there on the cross, he heard the scream of silence back at him as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Keller says this, here's what's happening, friends. We'll close with this. What was happening on the cross? I'll tell you what was happening on the cross. Jesus Christ was getting not the benediction, but the malediction, the curse, the word of condemnation that we deserved. He was getting the divine word, the malediction that says, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire. That was happening to him on the cross. He was getting the malediction we deserve because we've been our own saviors, our own lords. We've turned away. We have worshiped the created order. We have worshiped wealth and power. We've worshiped everything but the maker and he got the malediction we deserve so we can get the benediction that he earned with his life. A good word spoken over you because of what Jesus has accomplished. Friends, that's the kind of freedom we need. That's the kind of freedom we find when we remember that we were created to worship him, that nothing is to rise above that line. And when we rest in that, there's flourishing. We're living according to God's plan and pattern and good design of forming and filling. And we get to participate in all of those things, but we don't do it to earn anything. It's all been earned by Jesus. May you hear the good words spoken over you. As you get ready to come to this table, let it be a reminder that speaks of your belonging. You're a child of the King and he loves you and he's crazy about you. And you have the righteousness of a son in Jesus. May we rest in that and be the church and the people that he's invited us to be. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this text. Thank you for all the things even surrounding it, God. I pray that you would take your truth and you would apply it to our hearts, that you would stir in us a greater affection for you, a greater thankfulness that we belong. May we have a confidence this morning. May we be assured by the spirit that we are your children. God, I pray for any that haven't trusted in you, that today would be the day that they go, God, from being dead to being made alive, to being disconnected from the family, to being adopted in, to know that they belong. And so we thank you for this meal that unifies us, that speaks of the unity we have. We thank you that we get to worship you through song. 
but thank you that we get to worship you with our lives. And so God, we pray that you would help us to do that, that we would do it for your glory and for our joy. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.